shift gears a little here. Um, go ahead and open up to First John. First John, a little kind of background um, as we get ready to kick off our new series, Basic Christianity. Um, a couple weeks ago, I posted a question, or I guess a series of questions, um, to just kind of poll some issues that you all, we all kind of felt were issues um, that Christians face in general, that our church may face um, from a cultural perspective, whatever. And um, as I went through those answers as they came in, um, the Lord just kind of led me to First John. Um, and, and as I was going through reading that again it was clear that the letter of first john really the letters of first second and third john all kind of spoke to a lot of those same issues and being someone who truly believes that expositional preaching which is going line by line verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the scripture is um, the way that God has laid out for us. That's where we're at. Um, and as I read through it and wrestled with um, the direction, I guess, um, this is where we're at, basic Christianity, right? Because most of us here um, know who Jesus is. Now, I'm not saying you're a Christian, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that we all are saved, but, but we know who Jesus is, so we've been presented, at least, um, with who Jesus is. Um, and, and more than likely, most of us have probably heard the gospel clearly portrayed. That's the pretty typical thing with many people in the South. The missing part is not the hearing of who Jesus is or hearing of the gospel. It's how do we live in response to the gospel, right? In other words, what does it look like to actually follow Jesus? What does it look like to be surrendered to Jesus, what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? So, for the next three months, we are going to look at the letters of John. And I know it's kind of awkward. I mean, me and Allison had this conversation, like, you know, aren't we going back into John's gospel? You know, like, when, when are we doing that? <laughs> Probably in January. Um, and so it, that may kind of seem odd, but... The scope of John's letters serves a different purpose than the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was what? In what we read in John chapter 20, so that you may believe, right? So that we may see who Jesus is and hear of who Jesus is and, and surrender our lives to him, right? It's so we may believe. The letters of John are more about what do we do with that. So. For the next three months, we will be in John's letters. Um, 
basic Christianity? What does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it authentically look like to follow Jesus? Because a lot of us and a lot of the people we know will say they're following Jesus, but they're not actually following Jesus, okay? Um, I mean, I'm just going to be super real. We can say it all we want, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what's happening, okay? And so we need to find through Scripture what does it look like. So what does the Scripture clearly portray to us on what it actually looks like to authentically follow Jesus as one of Jesus' people? Because if you remember, there were people who followed Jesus who did not know Jesus. Judas was probably the clearest example of that. Judas was a disciple of Jesus. He lived in the presence of Jesus, walking with Jesus, learning from Jesus, um, seeing the work of Jesus on display for three years, and in the end, he sold him out for money. That's not an authentic follower of Jesus. So what does it clearly look like from Scripture to follow Jesus? point is this, that what we believe does, not should, it does shape who we are and how we live. The temptation is to say should, and I probably say should a lot more than I should, in, even in my notes. But the reality is that once we come to know Christ and we come face to face with the glories of his gospel, we cannot walk away unchanged, period. And so, yes, this is the same John who wrote John's gospel. It's the same John who wrote the book of Revelation, and he's writing these letters to the church, to other Christians who are facing false teachers. There was this group that rose up, they started teaching false teaching, and they actually left the church. Basically, it was like a little church split. They went their own way. They started their own thing, trying to stray the people of God away with false teachings. So John writes these letters to the church, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, to remind them that their assurance is found in the person and work of Jesus. To remind them of who he was. For why they were following him. And that's what I hope we find today. And throughout the rest of this series. So, let's start our journey together. And basic Christianity by beginning with a sermon, a joy-filled life. Here's the main idea. The secret to a joy-filled life and a life that most honors God is one rooted in and surrendered to Jesus. John 1, starting in verse 1, that which we that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it 
and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life with, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you that our joy may be complete. Let's pray together. Father, what a morning we've had already to come face to face with this Real life reminder that the only sure thing in our lives is you. And Father, as we begin this series, Basic Christianity, as we're walking through John's epistles, I pray, Father, that you would just speak greatly into our lives so that we come face to face with another reality that you are all we have you are all we need and so our lives should be radically altered by that truth God I pray that for most of us we'll just quit playing games that we'll own the faith that you have given to us through the work of your son Jesus that we will quit just saying we're yours by name only, but that we will surrender our lives completely to you, that everything will be changed. And people might even say, those cats are crazy. But God, isn't that what it means to follow you? In radical abandonment? May we be radically transformed by the renewing of our minds. That is by the hearing of your good news. So that we live our lives in spiritual worship. For the glory of God alone. So God I'm asking that you bless the reading of your word. And I'm asking that you speak now to us through the words of your Holy Spirit. That we would leave this place today. Yes, challenged by your word to, to live lives that are different. That yes, we would be encouraged by what we hear. But most importantly, God, I pray that we leave here in awe of who you are. Because as we know, John wrote this letter and he begins it with the truth that Jesus is God. And that in him, our joy may be complete. So let us rest in that truth this morning, Father. And speak as you would speak. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Again, the secret to a joy-filled life and a life that most honors God is one rooted in and surrendered to Jesus. As we start with verse 1, we see that a joy-filled life has a solid foundation. Again, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Jesus is the word of life. That is our beginning point. Jesus. 
It all hinges on Jesus. That is, our belief in Jesus affects everything. It changes everything. If we mess up the belief in Jesus, then we mess up, right? He's not just a part of a belief system. He is the belief system. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus. And John writes, he starts this letter, that which was from the beginning, Jesus. He is equating Jesus with God. One of the false ideas that they were facing was this idea of Gnosticism, which believed that, yeah, God sent his son, sent, um, but that Jesus that was in our present was, presence was just an image. He was just a spirit. He was basically a mirage. That's not true. Jesus proved that in his death on the cross. But that which was from the beginning, Jesus, God himself. And he came, so which we have heard. We have heard his teaching. We have heard his message. We have heard him in our presence in which we have seen with our eyes. We saw him. We saw his works. We, we saw him grow. We saw him live. We saw him teach. We saw him work. We saw everything in which we have looked upon. That means which we have observed. We have witnessed the entire thing, including his death, burial, and resurrection in which we have touched with our hands. We not only saw him, and we not only heard him, but we touched him. Gnosticism you could not touch because they did not teach that Jesus was a real man. He was simply a mirage, but we touched Remember Thomas, after the resurrection of Jesus, doubting Thomas, show me, prove to me. And he put out his hands, Jesus and Thomas touched those scars and he fell down and he worshiped. So that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon or observed and which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, concerning Jesus. He is the center point of everything. Everything was made by him. Everything was made for him. Everything was made through him. And to find true joy, we must first look to Jesus as Lord of our life and as Savior of our souls. He was God. He was from the beginning. This is pointing to the divinity of Jesus. This is not just a man. This is God in the flesh. He was, as some of the old theologians and some of the old um, catechisms said, he was very God of very God. Eternally existing. He always has been. He always will be. There's never been a point that Jesus wasn't, and there never will be a point where Jesus ceased to exist. He is God. He always has been. He always will be. And there is never going to be a time where he abandons his people. But not only is he divine, but he was man. Jesus was human. We have seen, heard, and we have seen, and we have looked upon, and we have touched speaks to the incarnation of Jesus we're on the brink of the Christmas season where we celebrate Jesus coming into the world as the savior of the world and he's saying not only did Jesus come but he actually came it wasn't just a mirage but he 
physically came the God-man to his people. And we have heard him and we have seen him. We have observed him and we have touched him. God came. He came. So Jesus is the foundation. And so it is vitally important to get Jesus right. I mean, there are so many cults that try to say that they're Christians, but they deny the very person and work of Jesus, or they deny the divinity of Jesus, or they deny the personhood of Jesus. But if you miss Jesus, you miss the whole point, and you are not a saved believer at all. So somebody could say they're a Christian all day long, but if they deny any point that what Scripture attests to the person and work of Jesus, as Scripture says, the truth is not in them. A joy-filled life has a solid foundation, and Jesus is that foundation. And secondly, a joy-filled life has a testimony. He goes on in verse 2, the life was made manifest. So Jesus, the, the word of life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. Again, the incarnation, Jesus came, the God-man came, he is real. Listen to what John Piper says, it's not going to be on the screen because it's really long, um, but it's important that you hear this. He calls this the stumbling block of the incarnation. He says, many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains a merely spiritual reality. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross exposing the particular sins of our particular lives then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many in other words it's okay as long as he's just a figment of our imagination but when it gets real we don't want as much to do with it he goes on he says i don't think it is so much the mystery of a divine and human nature in one person causes most people to stumble over the doctrine of the incarnation the stumbling block is that if the doctrine is true every single person in the world must obey this one particular jewish man everything he says is law everything he did is perfect and the peculiarity of his work and word flow out into history in the form of a particular inspired book written in the particular language of Greek and Hebrew that claims a universal authority over every other book that has ever been written. This is the stumbling block of the incarnation. When God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose a self-sufficient as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says we are all sick with sin and we must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life. 
because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He says, when God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. And this man, Jesus, becomes the measure of all things. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of men and women. The incarnation is a violent, a violation of the bill of human rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is totalitarian. It is authoritarian. Imperialism. Despotism. Usurp- usurp- usurpation? I, I brutalized that, I understand. Absolutism. Who does he think he is? God. In other words, by God becoming man, it changed everything. Because our inclination, our temptation is to elevate ourselves to the standard of God. That's what got Satan kicked out of heaven. He wanted to be God. Our nature as sinners is to be as God. We want to be the most important. We want to be the standard. But when Jesus came, everything changed. And now he is the standard. So the realization is. God came. That is the most important part of Christmas that we miss every year. God came to us. Broken, defiled, defunct, jacked up, sinful, horrible people. And God came to us. And it says we have heard him. And we have seen him. And we have observed him. And we have touched him. He was, yes, 100% God, but he was also 100% man. Again, the very God of very God. And so we testify. Jesus came. He came as, and he brought to us the word of life. And we proclaim it and we do so with absolute joy because he is the greatest man who ever lived and he is God and he is at the same time the best thing about our lives. We can boast about our jobs, we can boast about our spouses, our families, our children, everything. We can even boast about our church, but the best thing about our lives is Jesus. Always has been, always will be. And if you don't have Jesus in your life, then you're missing out on the greatest thing ever. And your only hope for salvation. Again verse 2 says. The life that is Jesus. The word of life was made manifest. And we have seen it. And we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life. Which was with the father. And was made manifest to us. So church part of. Basic Christianity is understanding that Jesus is the central point. And that because Jesus is the central point, we have a message to proclaim. So we are to proclaim what is important. 
You know what our, every, well, not every one of us. You know what a lot of us in here today, our primary temptation is? That when this service is over, we start talking about yesterday. It was a good day. Dogs won. It's great. But it doesn't compare to this. And I'm saying that is probably the biggest dog fan in this room. Some of you might object to that. We'll have to agree to disagree. We have a testimony to share. Thirdly, a joy-filled life has a desire to fellowship. Verse 3 says, that which we have seen, you see the repetition here. He's getting the point across right up front. And we're not falling for this false mess. We follow Jesus because of who Jesus was, and that ain't changing. So verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So what's our motivation? In life, it's what we have seen and what we have heard we proclaim. Now, there may be some of you in here saying, well, I've never actually seen Jesus. true but according to Peter you have the prophetic word made more sure as a lamp shining into a dark place this is God's word it is perfect absolutely without error and it is inspired by the very breath of God and it is a gift from God to his people which is more complete than even those who were following Jesus during Jesus' time had. In other words, while you may not have physically seen Jesus with your eyes, you have seen his word, so guess what? That excuse is null. I heard Louis Giglio say one time, you know, in Acts chapter 2, we see the church being built and we see all of these things happening. And, and we're so quick to say, if we only had this, or if we only had that, then we could do... Man, one of the greatest revivals that ever happened was in Acts chapter 2, and it happened because they had three things. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus, which we are because we have the Word. They had the Word of God, and not even in as complete form as we do. And they had the Holy Spirit living within them. And we have that same spirit that lives within us. If we have trusted in Christ. And again we have the prophetic word made more sure. In the inspired and errant word of God. Which tells us that Jesus both was very real. And that he died a very real death. And he definitely rose again. Now. In other words, if we have that, what's to say and what's to stop 
a move of God that happened in Acts 2 from happening again. And so often we live ho-hum lives, and I think we forget the power and majesty of who God is. Again, that's the message we have, and that's the message we're called to proclaim. And that message is much greater than any sports team, any family member, any career path, you name it. Again, folks, Jesus changes everything. Including our desire for fellowship. That word fellowship in the Greek is the Greek word koinonia. And what it literally means is that we're sharing in common something both significant and important. It's a lot different from the way we use the word fellowship, huh? Like fellowship for us is we're having a cookout tonight, right? Again, sharing in common something significant and important. Why? Because Jesus is all to us. Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Seminary, says this. It entails the joy and oneness in a group of people who are in accord regarding something that really matters. Really matters. Not what we think to matter, but what actually matters. It says you share common values, beliefs, and goals. You love the same things. You pursue a common agenda. Now the question is, is does that look like us? Do we love the same things? It's not a trick question. Let me tell you what the answer is. No. Do you know why? Because I don't think our hearts have been fully shaped to be as Christ. Now, are we going to be perfect? No, not in this life. Do we share common agendas? Again, not a trick question. No. But it's the same answer. Because we have not found Christ to be everything to us. But the promise is this, that if Jesus is all to us, then our desire should be to invite as many as we can to be in fellowship with us. In other words, it's like Jeremiah, that I have a fire down within my bones and I can't contain it. Christ becomes everything. And maybe you're like an analytical person and you're thinking, but isn't this entire basic Christianity? And you're like leading us into radical Christianity. Radical Christianity is basic Christianity. What we have is not basic Christianity. What we have is defunct Christianity. We have cultural Christianity. But I think in a letter that is addressing a church that is dealing with false teachers, it is clear that the most important thing is the word of life, Jesus. And not only do they have Jesus, but 
because they have Jesus, everything around them has changed. They, they want nothing more than to declare the goodness of Jesus. They want to proclaim the goodness of Jesus who has made himself manifest to us. And, and in his coming, he has given us hope and he has given us a desire to love other believers and to serve other believers so that we're working together to proclaim in unison the goodness and the glory and the majesty of Jesus. Look at the last half of that. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, His Son, Jesus Christ. No other fellowship compares than what we have as believers, which is a reflection of the fellowship we have with the Father and Son. perfect picture of community is the Trinitarian God we serve. And that God has loved us and he has pursued us and he is pursuing us. Becoming a Christian and being brought into fellowship with the Father and the Son radically alters how we view others and should fuel our deep longing to invite them in. So when we begin to ask ourselves the serious question on why are we not inviting people to church or why are we not inviting people into our lives or why are we not inviting people into our home do we are we missing the point that Christ has invited us into fellowship with him lastly a joy filled life has hope in Jesus closes in verse 4 he says and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Piper says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The Westminster Catechism begins, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We make much of God when we find rest in who he is. Do you know that, our, and, and all I'm doing is repeating last week, basically, right? Which was Psalm 17. It's just like a repetition. We try to fill our lives with false hope, false securities, false satisfactions. Things that will fizzle and flame out. God does not. So if we want to truly find joy, we want to truly find satisfaction, then the only place we can find that is in Christ. Again, the secret to a joy-filled life and a life that most honors God is one that is rooted in and surrendered to Jesus. See, true joy and hope is found in being known by Him. And I know that's antithetical to the main message that you hear today, that that if you want to find hope, just do this. Go after Jesus. Pursue Jesus. Do everything you can to get Jesus. When the reality is, is Jesus has already got us. And that leads us into a life of true peace and happiness as we understand that grace is that God has already done for us what was necessary. 
We can't outgive God, and that is so often misquoted, but that's true. God gave Himself so that we could have life and have it more abundantly. So true joy, true peace, true happiness, true satisfaction rests in the hope that we have in Jesus. That's why he says, and we are writing these things, what? That Jesus is God, that he was made manifest to us, and we have heard him, and we have seen him, and we have observed him, and we have touched him, and we proclaim it, and we want to have fellowship with others. We write these things so that our joy may be complete. Our belief in Jesus changes everything. Our belief in Jesus, the word of life, as outlined in Scripture, make sure you get that part, leads us on a path of complete joy as we pursue holiness and we find assurance in Him while we are walking step and step with other believers. It's not what we want to believe about Jesus that matters. It's what Scripture teaches about Jesus that matters. And the truth is, is that Jesus is God. He's not just some fairy tale. C.S. Lewis, among others in Mere Christianity, outlined Jesus. And I'm, I'm going to try this because I didn't write it down. But, but this is um, a paraphrase of what he said. There's, there's basically four ways to look at Jesus. He was either a liar that everything he said was a complete lie, right? That everything we believe, everything we teach, everything that we own into, buy into is completely a lie. Or he was a lunatic, meaning that he believed what he was saying, but it was completely ludicrous. All right? Or that he was a legend and everything's completely fairytale. Or that he's actually Lord. Which means we better take it to the bank. And like Popper was saying early, it changes everything. The fact that Jesus came does truly change everything. Our belief in Jesus as outlined in Scripture is what leads us forward on a path of complete joys. We pursue holiness and we walk step in step with other believers. So again, your belief in Jesus is the central most important thing in your life. Now we have to look at our lives. This is the hard part, right? The hard part is looking at our lives and saying, is that true? What am I putting before Christ? Have you reflected on the truth that he is actually God? And not just a liar, a lunatic, or a legend. Do we believe that Jesus is God? And do we believe that he actually came to us? That sets apart Christianity from everything else. God came. He's not calling us to make our way to him. God came to us. He made the impossible possible. So have you truly given your life to Jesus for salvation? Based on him and his work. Or are you still just kind of playing the game, hoping that in the end, it'll all work out? Good will outweigh the bad. Because you served him for a little while, he's good with that. Or are you simply trying to appease him with your words and deeds? 
Do you share the good news of salvation with others? I love, um, several years ago I went to a conference and one of the comments that was made was, when is the last time we've wept over the sin of others? Are we so in love with Jesus that we're ready to tell the world about him? And are you pursuing fellowship with like-minded Christians? You know, here was the the central consistency that I kept finding in the answers that were turned back into me. We don't love each other like we should. We say we do, you know, we come to church together. Some of us do community groups together. But are we doing life together? Have you trusted in Jesus as your ultimate source of hope? Do you wish to have a joy-filled life? Then surrender to him today. I'm going to leave you with this. You cannot live a joy-filled life, nor a life that honors God, until first your life is surrendered to him. Surrendered, not like partially given over part of it, completely, all his. And you cannot live a life as a true Christian and a true believer until you first confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior. So will you trust him today? Will you find him as your ultimate source of joy? Let's pray. Father, I do pray for this series and our time together in the upcoming months. That you move us and you shake us and you awaken us to the reality of what your scripture teaches about you and how in return we are to live in response to who you are. So may you do a work now that for those who are maybe coming face to face with the truth that they've simply been living a lie, God, that they would come to you and surrender fully to you as their only hope for salvation. Make much of yourself in the time we have left together today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.